This program contains adult themes not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It was something that you would see being hit by a train. Her lips split and her face flattened, her nose non-existent. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode eight of At Death's Door. So before we get into today's episode, um, do you want the bad news or the good news? I'm going to give you the bad news first. So these episodes have been taking me a little bit longer than I would like to make because I have been having some technical difficulties with my laptop. I wanted to be candid about that. I wanted to let you guys know that I do want to pump out episodes faster and more for you guys, but it has been an absolute task in itself to get one episode done. So that is where that delay comes from. It's supposed to be an episode a week. It has been more like an episode whenever I can. So there is a reason behind that. It's not a lack of me not wanting to, but straight up technical difficulties. That's the bad news. The good news is we are working on it. I have my boyfriend checking on my laptop and he's gonna be doing some of his wizard magic to fix it. So I am hoping in the near future, I'll be able to pump out even more episodes for you guys, even more quickly. And that's really all I have to say for my intro. And I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. The Jordan River is located in Utah. This river runs 51 miles long and flows through the beautiful Salt Lake Valley and empties into the Great Salt Lake. This river is a nature hub. Once being the main home for bighorn sheep and beavers, this river is frequented by raccoons, red wolves, domestic pets, and over 200 different species of birds. The Jordan River is a beautiful part of Utah's history, a place where humans and wildlife alike can share one of Mother Nature's many gifts. And since the 1980s, this urban oasis offered many recreational activities, such as international peace gardens, jogging trails, fishing, and canoeing, just to name a few. On March 11, 2012, A man decides to take advantage of the peaceful spring weather and takes a jog on a trail by the Jordan River. This man jogs on a nearby ridge where he finds a single red shoe. 911, what is the address of the emergency? There's some pools of blood. I'm guessing it's just an animal, but in the water right by the river, there's a shoe just below the golf course where the bridge, there's a bridge for the pathway that you can cross to go up to the golf course. There's like one, two big piles of blood, and there's splatter blood all over the bridge. And then right along the edge of the water, there's like a red uh, hit shoe in there. It could have just floated in, but I figured I'd better call you guys. The discovery of a child's shoe at the river was, of course, odd. Nearby rocks were covered in pools of thick, coagulated blood. This was indeed a crime scene. When I arrived, 
there was a red shoe found floating in the river right next to the blood. First thing I could do was let's make sure that this blood is human blood and it's not animal blood. Comes back, it's human blood. So then we realize something bad has happened. It didn't take long for investigators to search the area. A helicopter was called, and this aerial search would uncover a body and a tangled web of lies along with it. So at this point, we call in a helicopter. They are probably up in the helicopter for five minutes, and the radio comes in that they have found a body in the water. It's a young girl. She's fully clothed, but with severe lacerations on her face and her forehead. I'm trying to really piece this together why this young girl has been beaten so severely and dumped in a river. Somebody had to have some type of passion, rage, to go to that extent. That the braces were the only thing holding her teeth and it was definite overkill. Floating down a river that is typically known for its beauty in life was the body of a girl. Her face was badly injured and the bloat of decomposition was present. The crime scene would have been difficult to process because you essentially had two crime scenes. You had the area where they found the, the blood and the shoe, but the body wasn't there. The body had floated downriver. As far as her identification, she didn't have anything else to identify her. And her face had been disfigured to where an initial just glancing identification was fairly difficult. She had been in the water for you know several hours, and so her face was swollen. Several of her facial bones had been broken. She had a very predominant injury that was on her forehead. Shortly after the discovery, a press conference was held, and the news of this unidentified teen quickly spread. The description of the teen's clothes was released, and it wasn't long after that, a call was made to police. A woman by the name of Veronica Kasberzak was in a state of shock. She claimed that the body of this teen was her daughter, Annie. Annie Kasberzak was a 15-year-old girl who lived with Veronica and her stepdad, James. We look on the news and saw that there had been a body found in the river not far from the house. So we call the police and report that our daughter was missing and that we're just trying to rule out if this might be her or not. A little while later, the officer is texting me and he's asking if Annie has any headgear, referring to her braces. And I explain that yes, she still has her braces in and the phone goes silent. And we know that that's confirmation. We know that that's her. A Draper Police Department officer arrives at our house and we invite them in and they confirm that the body is Annie. And the officer says she, she was murdered. In many ways, Annie was like every other 15-year-old girl. But at the core, Annie had been through more than the average teenager. Annie spent most of her life looking for the love that she deserved. Being a child who was a part of the foster care system, you can only imagine the amount of emotional and psychological damage this can do to a young person. She was removed from her biological mother when she was about three years old. Mom had struggled with drugs and other domestic violence. I was a social worker with, with Child Protective Services. My concern was, especially as she got closer to her teenage years, 
that adoption was just, the odds were just getting worse and worse for her. To hear this little girl had already been through nine or 10 placements, it broke my heart. I wanted her to have some stability. I wanted her to have a chance to succeed in life. For us, it wasn't a matter of should we adopt, it's how can we not? So Annie moved into our home July of 2009. Veronica and I both spent a lot of time with Annie and, and our children. And so I think our individual relationship started to suffer a little bit. So February of 2010, Veronica and I uh, ultimately divorced and became co-parents at that point, working together but separately, uh, raising our children, including Annie. Annie's adoptive mother, Veronica, alongside her adopted father, Dennis, tried their best for Annie. It was no easy task. Raising a child is difficult enough without the nuances that come with adopting from the foster care. Veronica and Dennis eventually divorce. Dealing with their failed marriage, now they must navigate through the hardships while co-parenting all their children together. Change was hard on Annie, and so she would act out. She had what, what is commonly referred to as reactive attachment disorder which is basically, I'm going to continue to test you because I know you will eventually leave me. I know you will eventually fail. And I'd much rather test you so that you fail on my terms versus when I get comfortable and then I get hurt. And so I wanted to give her the consistency that we weren't going to leave her, no matter how much she tested us, no matter how much she did, that we were still going to be there. The night before Annie's body was discovered at the Jordan River, her mother, Veronica, found a note in her room. In this note, Annie stated that she was running away to California. Annie told her mother to not look for her, but that she did love her. Annie did have some behavioral issues, but none of these issues were greater than Veronica's dedication to give Annie a better life. Children do run away sometimes, but there was no way that Veronica would expect this to lead to Annie's murder. It was just any other Saturday. My husband and I decide that we're going to go have dinner. After dinner, we come home. Annie is home. She's right there at the front door as we walk in from dinner. And everything seemed okay. So I go in to take a shower. After I get out of the shower, I call my sister on the phone and it crosses my mind, you know what, I haven't seen her or heard from Annie since I got home. I go into her bedroom, and it's empty. I yell to my husband, I say, James, Annie's missing. She's not in her room. And he comes back upstairs, and he is holding this note. So the note says, I'm headed to California. I'm so sorry. It's not you. It's me. Uh, I'm not pregnant. I'm not P. It says that Annie is really sorry that she had told other kids that she was pregnant and that she just couldn't face it anymore. And I think part of that is her being naive, but part of it is also wanting to be pregnant. Even though she was super young, the idea of being a mom has always appealed to her because in her mind, having a biological child of her own would be her irrefutable, permanent sense of family. I'm worried because it's dark, and he's usually not gone during the dark, and she's not having any contact with us. So I call the police, and I make the report of her as a runaway. As soon as I get off the phone with the police, I call Chris. After the discovery of Annie's note, Veronica calls Annie's boyfriend. 
Krish Bagshaw was a 14-year-old boy with shaggy, dirty blonde hair, usually wearing his baseball caps backwards and a silver chain around his neck. He didn't really stand out. Annie and Chris had been dating for some time, and Veronica wondered if maybe she had ran away with Chris. Veronica knew that Annie had lied about being pregnant, and maybe Chris had some information about where Annie had gone off to. Chris does come off as nonchalant and is unaware of Annie's plans to run away. Chris Bagshaw, him and Annie, were on and off again as boyfriend and girlfriend. I mean, he's just your typical-looking 14-year-old boy. Chris is this kind of skater dude. Everything about him is casual. And even though he wasn't mentioned in the note, I am almost certain that if she's not with him, then she's spoken with him. I tell him that Annie is missing, and I ask him if he's seen her or if he's with her or if he's talked to her. And he just tells me, well, I haven't talked to her. But if I hear from her, I'll let you know. Police start their investigation in Annie's bedroom. They gather items from Annie's room, including a phone, a laptop, and several journals. One item stuck out to police. In one of these journals, Annie had documented her obsession with her boyfriend, Chris. Almost every page in this journal was filled with love doodles. This is an interesting contrast to Chris's behavior. He was only 14 years old, but it was clear that Annie had feelings that Chris could not match. Rumors around classmates confirmed that Annie might have been pregnant with Chris's child. However, Annie's autopsy confirmed that she was not pregnant. We're giving the police the things that we have in the house. We give them all of our computers that she's had any contact with so that they can see if she's been messaging anybody. I think they take like a tote full of papers with them. And in that are some of her journals. Her journals are her way of saying what's going on, and if she's had any private conversations, they would be in her journals. There was lots and lots of writing that we went through. I think that was one of the biggest keys in looking into her mind and trying to figure out who she was. And then journals. She is a typical 15-year-old. I would say boy crazy. She wants to believe in love. The friends from school who we talked to about who was Annie's boyfriend, all of them talked about Chris, that Annie mentioned Chris, that she was going to run away with Chris, that she and Chris were dating. There was a rumor about a possible pregnancy and, and the, that Chris was the dad. We found out that she had lost her virginity with Chris. We get Annie on birth control. Annie wanted to be pregnant, and Annie wanted to keep any baby that she had, no questions asked. Now, there was no kid in question at that time, but that was her perspective. Chris was brought in for questioning. Because he was only 14 at the time, his father, Darwin, had to be present during the police interview. Tell me the last time that you saw Annie. Um, Wednesday and Thursday of last week. Do you remember what time? I don't. I know that it was after school, and she had to go home around 6. Okay, um, when's the last time you spoke with her? Um, the night of session. Do you remember what time that was? Um, around 8. How many times did you talk to her that night? Um, I talked to her twice, but she called me four times. How long do you think your conversations were with her? Um, five or six minutes. Five or six minutes each, or? Well, yeah, each. What did you guys talk about? 
comes, he asked me to run away with her. And I tried to convince her not to, and I told her that that was a stupid idea, and to think about her family. Tell me about what kind of rumors were out there about you and Annie. Um, the rumors said that I got her pregnant, but I didn't. When did you find out? Or when did she start telling you that? That what? That she was pregnant with your baby? She didn't start telling me. She started telling everybody else around a month after um, she had it. During the interrogation, Chris mentioned that Annie had also been sexually active with another boy by the name of LJ. LJ was often mentioned in Annie's journals. Chris explains to detectives that Annie had asked Chris to cover for her. He explains that LJ was 17 years old and that Annie's parents would not approve of her having a sexual relationship with LJ. When did she tell you that she was pregnant? Around a month after. About a month after? When do you think that was? About what month? Um, well, she had had with LJ in November. Tell us more about how you know about her. Um, she told me that she didn't want her family to find out that she had LJ sneak into her house and that's because they knew LJ was 17. So she asked me if I could take blank for it and I told her that I told that I would agreed to let her know how they did sleep. How many times did you have with Annie? Once. When was that? The night that we hung out and stressed And where was, and about what month or day? It was Wednesday or Thursday of last week. Wednesday or Thursday of last week? Yes. Chris tells police that the night that him and Annie did have sex, that she had gotten a bloody nose and that some of the blood had dripped onto his shoes. He was worried that Annie's murder would be pinned on him, so he might as well fess up to something so that nothing gets pinned on him. I'm there to collect clothes and collect evidence. The first thing I know is that he's got brand new shoes on. His dad verified that he just needed new shoes and his dad had just recently purchased him new shoes, but no explanation of the old shoes. I asked for his shoes. So he goes, he gets his shoes, and he says, by the way, the other day when I was with Annie, she got a bloody nose. Red flags go up. Just looking at them, there actually isn't any visible blood. We probably wouldn't even looked at them if we hadn't heard the bloody nose story. We collect the shoes. We collect his DNA. Chris explains that he urged Annie to not run away. What else did you guys talk about besides running away on Saturday? Um, I just tried to convince her to think about it twice and think it over and... If there's something wrong with her family, then to think about everything good in her family. And I tried to convince her that it wasn't a good idea and that she should need to do it. To think about her friends as well. Okay. And what did you do after 8 o'clock? Or where were you at when you were talking to her? Um, my dad had left to go to the bar. And I went to my grandma's at first. Oh, what time do you think you... Oh, um, well, Saturday night. I imagine I probably, I left probably about six or seven. What part you best Oh, the way the dogs went. And so did you leave right when your dad left? No, I stayed home and I played the video game for a little while. For how long do you think? Um, an hour, an hour and a half. Did it, was anybody else there with you? No, it was just me. Anybody call you when you were there, do you remember? No. Um, 
And then afterwards, I went to my grandma's house, which is only three doors down. I called you that night. Oh, we did. Because I told you I was going to have company. Yeah. And you were still in the house. What time did you ask him to stay with us? Yeah. What time did you call him? Oh. Oh, man. It was like 8 or 7. Yeah. Like 7.45 to 8. I'm not real positive on the exact time that I, I called him. And so when he called, did you go right over to your grandma's? No, I stayed home. A little bit, and I played the vision pin because that was like in the hour and a half. We're talking about just last Saturday, right? Yeah. Okay, no, I left the house at 6 o'clock last Saturday. I left with a buddy named Kevin. Police decide to get a search warrant for Spencer Criddle's house. This is the mutual friend of Annie and Chris. This is also the home where Annie got her supposed nosebleed, and if this incident happened at Spencer's, they needed his side of the story, too. You had talked about Annie coming here. I mean, Annie talking, calling you, and you weren't here. Um, uh, tell me about that. What were you doing that day? I went to the gym with my little brother. Okay. With your little brother? My older brother. And how long were you guys at the, at the gym? For two hours. Two hours. Yeah, that's a long time. He's like, are you fine with going there for two hours? Like, Chance, are you serious? He's like, yeah, man. We're not Marines. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then, uh, so then what time did you get back to the house? Around 8.30. And then is that when you checked your messages? Yeah, I went upstairs and about like 10 minutes, 20 minutes later, and and there's like text messages and calling messages and everything. Mm Mm-hmm. No text messages from Annie, just like two missed calls, I think, from Annie, and one voice message. Okay. And then, um, do, you, do you have your cell phone? Is that the way I got the messages? Yeah. Do you have it with you here? Yeah. Do you mind if we take a look at it? The thing is, though, unknown number tried calling me. There's the call logs. Unknown number. Let's try finding some way to get that voice message back for anything. For Jim on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Then what to do? Came home, my dad was like, you guys hungry? And I was like, yeah, sure. He's like, want me to make you a pot pie? I was like, all right, I guess. After I had pot pie, well, that, that's actually before when my dad was making, I checked my messages. Mm-hmm. After Chance literally drained out my energy at the thing, I like fell asleep for a second on his bed. And I was like, get up for the dinner. Mm-hmm. And after that, went up and got on the PS3 and just started watching Netflix and playing games. Mm-hmm. I kept the phone right there, just waiting for Annie's to be called. I'm just like, come on. Okay. Wait, the next day, nothing. Spencer confirms with police that Annie was involved with a boy named LJ. LJ had managed to hack Annie's emails, and with Spencer getting calls from unknown numbers, the mystery surrounding this LJ deepens. Physically talked on the phone or had a, a chat with um, LJ. Did you ever? Have a chat with LJ? Yeah. I just, he just messaged me on his email. Okay. That's all. Okay. And so it was over email. Yeah. Okay. Somehow she hacked in. He hacked into it. Okay. So it was Annie's email. Mm-hmm. And then, but it was from LJ. Yes. So how did you know it was LJ? Because Annie, the next day, well, he told me. Oh, but Annie he next said, day, this is LJ or yeah. something? Yeah. And I was like, LJ, why are you on, you know, Annie? Huh. He's like, oh, I hacked into it. I was like, oh, well, that's perfect. <laughs> but you never had a physical, like a, a conversation with them, though, then? No. Okay. That was how long ago? Um, it was back in like I think either late November or early December. It was one of those. I can't remember. 
makes it out of the ordinary for you to get unknown calls. So you get them all the time. Oh, well, sorry, I, I thought you said, do you usually get unknown calls? No, I, I don't. So that's uncommon. Then. Yeah, that's uncommon. Unless it's one of my friends that are playing a prank on me, but they haven't done that in a long time, so I don't know who could, that could have been. Because I can't call back, it'll be like a no number. I'm like, whatever. Do you know, do you, does your van ever, um, like, check your, your, does he have an account on T-Mobile online to, for phone bills and check like that? phone records does he yeah have? he actually tried searching up my phone record and he couldn't like i think he couldn't like i think he found it the call uh -huh. i asked him is there any way we can get the voice message please and he's like no it's not well the text email where he where he talked to lj whatever oh. happened to that um well since that was months ago my phone just built up and it's in like the memory and it goes berserk i can't like start taking pictures or anything it says memory so i had to Clear it out. I always do that. You get too much call messages. It just clears out. With rumors circulating the friend group that LJ was a part of a gang, friends began to worry about Annie and told her to not get involved with him. One of the things that was coming up and everything is that in talking with LJ, when you talked with LJ, did you actually physically talk to him on the phone or was it like through a message or how did you talk to him? Um, I talked to him once. Okay. Actually on the phone. Okay. And what did he say in that conversation? Um, that we were straight, like we were cool, and he wasn't coming anymore for me. But he did say that he was coming for somebody else, and then he hung up. Okay. And when you talked to him on the phone, did he speak with an accent, or do you notice anything distinctive about his voice? No, just normal. Okay, just a normal voice. And was there a phone number for that? No, it was with really or restricted. It said restricted on it. At this point, this mysterious boy named LJ was a prime suspect. Chris Bagshaw had an alibi the night of Annie's murder, so police decided they need to track down LJ. We'd never heard of LJ. I'm not sure if it was some sort of pseudonym that Annie had created. You don't think that someone could get angry enough to take somebody else's life. I've got all these emotions of anger and frustration and, you know, we're going to solve this, we're going to find out who did this. Chris said that this person named LJ was very violent and that he had threatened Chris a few different times and also Annie. He couldn't give any identifying features about LJ. He had never seen him, but he said, you might want to look into this person because I know he was angry with Annie. We did interview Spencer Criddle and Spencer was providing information about what his feelings were as far as Chris's relationship with Annie. They spent a lot of time working with the Metro Gang Unit, trying to see if they could find someone with a moniker of LJ. They did everything they could to try to find somebody who would fit the very brief description that, that was given, which was that he was around 17 years old, he was very violent, and his name was LJ. It seemed like this LJ guy was a ghost. With no description of this suspect and no one else who knew him, he was impossible to find. But this is when detectives get a break that they so desperately needed. A woman by the name of Joanna Franklin asks to speak with investigators, and what she has to say will blow the case wide open. Joanna was a criminal herself. She had a history of credit card theft, but Joanna hopes that her information on Annie's murder will help reduce her own charges. Joanne says she has witnessed the killing of Annie Kasperzak 
and it has been done by Daniel Ferry. I knew Daniel Ferry's name because I had actually been to his house a year prior for a search warrant. I knew he also had a violent history. She thought if she could tell the police something that, that, that helped solve a crime, that she would get leniency with things she'd done, leniency with law enforcement. She said that on the night that Annie was murdered, that she was at an apartment with Mr. Ferry and several other people. Annie was there, and that they were just kind of, I believe, doing drugs and partying, just kind of hanging out. They're gone for a while. They come back and say she's gone swimming or something like that, or she's not coming back. So as Joanne comes to us and tells us that she knows who LJ is, I mean, it's all just coming together. It's all fitting together. She had details about the case that we hadn't heard before but was making sense, according to the injuries and so forth. So at that point, we were on a different path. We were going to Daniel Ferry. Thanks to Joanna's information, police finally have a slight description of LJ. And because police knew the other man involved, Daniel Ferry, they knew that they were onto something. Daniel Ferry was a seasoned criminal, and he also had other violent crimes charged against him in the past. The one thing that wasn't clear was how Annie got involved with these men to begin with. So I met Daniel through a friend last year. How did it happen? She told Daniel no. Told him no for what? You want to have sex with her. He freaked. Were you at the house when he freaked? What happened? He got her by the back of the neck and he smashed her face into the wall, like they in front of her head in the wall. She fell. He kicked her a couple times. What happened after that? They picked her up and they put her in the suburban. That's what Daniel said. We went to the canyon. She's still breathing. She's still alive. Who left in the suburban? Daniel and LJ. Do you know LJ by anything else? I've only seen him a couple times. What does he look like? He's a little bit shorter than me. He's Hispanic, but he looks white. How old is he? Uh, 19. Detectives take Daniel into questioning. How do you know her? Brittany? Is her name Brittany? No, Danny. No, I didn't. But you might know her as Brittany. Brittany. She's, um, friends with, um. Did you something happen to her? Friends with who? Did you just tell me straight up, man? I want to know what you have to say first. And I'll think of everything you need to know, man, because she's hella cool, dude. Uh, that's Brittany. Um, I'm pretty sure that's Brittany. She she lives with Sal. Sal? She stays with Sal. She's Mercedes' friend. Mercedes' friend? Yeah. And, um,. Did something happen to her? She ever been to your house? Yeah, she just came to my house the other day. Did something happen to her? On a scale of zero being not at all and 100% positive that you know her as Brittany, where are you at on that? Uh, eight, dude, pretty sure that's Brittany. Eight out of ten? Eight out of ten, um, yeah. Eight, or are you eight, saying 80 out of 100? Well, either way. Either okay. way, it's the same thing. I'm pretty so sure it's her. Can be 100% positive for your eight out of ten that it's her. Dude, I swear to God, okay, hold on. her phone number just texted me today. I'll answer your questions in a minute. Me. I'll answer your questions in a minute, but you got a text from her and a call from her today, or yeah, a phone. Yeah, When's the last time you saw her? Um, that, uh, that day. That Saturday? No, uh, just like the day before I left, she, she came by my house. So when was that? And uh, she went to, she's been staying at Sal's house downtown. Who's Sal? This dude named Sal, and, um, 
And Sal, I don't know Sal, Sal's real name. I just call him Sal. He Her boyfriend's supposedly LJ. I don't even know who. LJ or JL. You may know her as Brett. Her real name's Annie. Okay. Who? You didn't see her the other day. No, dude, I don't even know who Annie hey, is. Tell me about this girl being at your house I last Saturday. I don't even know. I think she's Brett, dude. I don't okay. Know. She I don't... was at my house last Saturday. I, there's no young girls at my house, man. No? No. Ever? As far as I know, if they're young, dude, I send them the f out of there. What if she looked older? Well, that's just it, man. I, did I do something? Am I supposed to did something to this person? I have a concern. That's why we want to talk to you. I don't know well, if, if you, did or if you guys think I did something to her, I'm telling you right now, I didn't. And if you feel like I have, then I need a lawyer then. Because obviously, what I'm saying to you, you're, you're telling me that I'm not being honest with you, whatever. Do you need a lawyer or not, or should I continue? Continue, dude, but I'm just telling you, I don't know who, I think there's Brit. But if you, if you say you need a lawyer, so I have to address that now. I have to respect your rights. Yeah, I mean, if you guys Are think we I talking or not? If you guys think I did something to her, then you, hell yeah, I want a lawyer. Okay, so do you want a lawyer I did not do nothing to nobody. What if I told you she's dead? I didn't do it. <laughs> what the f Exactly. Are we here to talk, or do you want a lawyer? Because you said the word lawyer twice, no. Well, then talk, man, but don't act like I know who this girl is, I'm telling you, it's Brit, dude, it looks just like Brit. Okay. And she did what the? F you don't remember it's, telling it anybody that she went for a swim? It can't be her, dude, because she just was at my house. No, she's been dead for a week. And she was never at my house. I had never seen this girl before then. She's been dead for a week. Did she tell anybody she went for a swim? Who? That girl. No. And if somebody said I said that, they're liars, man. Let me ask you this. Did your wife get pissed? Here, it was probably just over a week ago, about some guy and girl having in your bed. Said it's, no, that you no, guys don't have a damn house. No, hold on. Nobody had my bed, though. Okay, but do you know about your wife getting pissed at you over one of your friends and some girl having in your bed? She didn't get mad at me over that. She didn't? No. Really? Ain't nobody had in my bed but me and my wife. Tensions rise in the interrogation room, and once again, this LJ character becomes a mystery. LJ's girlfriend. LJ brought to your house. Okay, now I don't know who LJ is, man. I don't know what you're calling, but everybody else calls him LJ. Annie called him LJ when she was still alive. She told people about LJ and going to your house. Dude, and now we've talked to people that have been at your house there, if with know, her and with LJ. And I know you're lying right there. Okay. Because I've never met a dude LJ I'm, at my house ever. I'm not lying to you, Danny. Yeah, you are lying to me. I'm telling you what other people have said. I don't care what the f*** he said. Ain't nobody named LJ ever. The crime scene at Daniel's house was compelling. There were holes in the walls and doors, signs of a struggle, and also blood. Daniel Ferry was very hard to read. It can be very frustrating when somebody adamantly denies their involvement, but yet there's still enough credible information. There's blood on his walls. He's ripped up his carpet. An eyewitness places him shoving Annie against the wall and taking her out only to come back laughing that she went swimming. We all know Annie's body was found in the Jordan River. All this evidence was sent to DNA processing. When we arrive at Daniel Ferry's house, first thing we're noticing is the carpet has been pulled up and the walls are being repainted. Well, the story is that she was in the hall when she was confronted by Daniel Ferry and the hall is where all this construction and flooring is pulled up and where new paint is being laid down. From law enforcement perspective, we would believe that they were trying to cover up a crime that occurred there by getting rid of the evidence. 
We did everything we could to recover every drop of blood. When police get the DNA profile back from the lab, they find out that the blood at Daniel's house was not a match with Annie's. This put a huge halt into the investigation and only made things more confusing for everybody involved. It was obvious that something sinister happened at Daniel's home, but there was no evidence that Annie was there at all. Police dig into Daniel's phone records only to reveal that he was nowhere near the location where Annie's body was found. This leads investigators to question Joanna once again. Joanna cracks under pressure and tells detectives that Daniel had cut her out of a business deal and she had to get revenge. She gathered as much information as she could on Annie's case and she tried to pin it on him. It was just pure happenstance that Daniel had actually committed a different crime on the same night that was eerily similar to Annie's. So Daniel Ferry winds up being alibied out from Annie's murder because he was committing another crime at the same time. Joanne has made up the whole thing just to avoid charges that she was facing. So she sees all this on TV and figures, hey, I've got some information that I will broker a deal for myself. And when the cop said, was LJ there? Of course, she's a con. She goes, LJ, yeah, he was there. You'd think after all the cases I've prosecuted, all the cases I've investigated, that I would be used to a con. But in my head right now, you know what I see? I see Annie. I'm just thinking about that little girl dead and then Joanna Franklin sitting there lying while the killer's walking free and a mom is suffering. Investigators had no choice but to go back to the drawing board and retrace their steps. This distraction costed a lot of time and pushed the search for Annie's killer back an entire year. Going over past evidence and police interrogations, they tried to find something that they had been missing. Three pieces of evidence stood out to them. A woman had made a tip to police stating that she had seen a man on a bike leaning over the south side barrier looking into the Jordan River the night of Annie's murder. This caller claimed that the male was leaning so far over this barrier that she was afraid that he was going to fall into the river. Another tip came from a man who called police and told them that at 2.30 p.m. on the day of Annie's murder, he witnessed a young male at a park nearby stating, in quote, I won't get caught, I won't get caught, while waving his hands around in the air. The caller described this young man as short with a full head of dark hair wearing a gray shirt with blue shorts. The third tip came from Chris Bagshaw himself. Chris claimed to look at LJ, and without a physical description of LJ, police decide to go over Annie's phone records again. While reviewing the phone log, there were several calls that Annie had received from a blocked phone number on the night of her murder. This blocked caller spoke to Annie on the phone all the way leading up to the time that she was murdered. This must be the mysterious LJ. Police requests an extraction of call data from the phone provider. It is now 2014. It has been two years since Annie's murder, and police are starting to put the pieces together. They call back all the people that they had interviewed in 2012. 
The first person that they bring back to be interviewed was Spencer Criddle, the mutual friend of Annie and Chris. They did find old text messages between Chris and Spencer. He had texted Spencer Criddle the day that the police went to his house to tell him to corroborate his story about the blood on the shoes. In the text message, Chris was trying to tell Spencer what he wanted him to tell law enforcement about that. During the interview with police, Spencer admits that he never actually saw Annie's nosebleed that night, but he did take Chris's word for it. I know that that you're covering for Chris. For instance, the thing with the phone, I mean, you know, that message. I mean, what has Chris told you? He just told me about the bloody nose thing. He said, if I saw it, and I didn't, and you said to say it, and I thought that's what happened because of what I heard. Spencer, did you ever see Annie with a bloody nose? I never saw it. I just heard him saying. Police interview Wilma Fern. This is Chris's grandmother. The night of Annie's murder, Chris was staying the night at her home. However, phone records show that Wilma had tried to call Chris several times into the night. It would be strange to have your grandson in the home with you and you're trying to call him. During the interrogation, Wilma maintains that Chris was at her home all night, but none of the evidence was lining up with that. She had made several calls to her grandson Chris well after midnight, but she stated that he had been at the house since 8 o'clock that night. Police also obtained the location of where these phone calls had taken place. Not only did they find that Chris had been lying about where he was that night, but they also found out the truth, that Chris was the one making these unknown phone calls to Annie. We start looking into what we can do with phone records. You can determine who was being called right down to basically a few square blocks as to pinpointing your location. You can tell cops anything, but your cell phone may tell the cops something very different. Chris Bagshaw made several statements to the police that he hadn't had much contact with Annie in the days preceding her death, maybe once or twice. But then when we looked at the cell phone records on the night that this happened, there were almost 10 phone calls back and forth between the two. Calls between him and Annie, calls from his grandma to him, and why is grandma calling him if he's supposed to be at grandma's house? There goes his alibi. By the time all these pieces were put together, police find out that Chris had moved to Colorado for his sophomore year. Police locate Chris and question him, and he finally decides to tell police the truth. In this perfectly curated plan, Chris described that LJ was not real. Annie had made LJ up to make Chris jealous. And when Chris saw LJ's name in her journals, he knew that that would be the perfect scapegoat for him. Phone records also show that Annie's mother, Veronica, had called Chris. His location was at the Jordan River. And it was later uncovered that he had answered the phone just minutes after murdering Annie. With the shocking confession confirmed, Chris was finally arrested for the murder of Annie. But remember, he was only 14 when he committed this crime. Veronica called Chris the night that Annie went missing, and Chris answered that phone call. When you're on your phone, your phone is set not to get the tower that's closest to your phone, but the one that gets the best signal. If you're moving during your call, your phone may switch towers, and that's called a pass. Part of what affects that is geography. 
And in that call, Veronica called, created this anomaly. There were a considerable amount of passes between six different towers around the area. That bridge where they found all of her blood and they found that shoe, that was the one place that did that. The location is actually showing Chris down in the ravine where we found all the blood. He's standing right next to Annie at that point. It's putting him right there seeing the crime. Because of his age, the state of Utah would have only placed him in a juvenile facility, and he would be able to walk free at the young age of 21. Police needed to gather more evidence. Trying a child as an adult is not an easy task, and they wanted to make sure Chris wouldn't be set free. There's a lot of things in place to protect juveniles who are charged with serious crimes. The charges are murder, but because he was 14 when this happened, we can't direct file it into adult court. The Utah statute required that the person be 15 years old before it's filed there. So because of his age, it had to be filed in juvenile court. By statute, the maximum sentence he could have got in the juvenile system, he would have to be released at age 21. Any sort of incarceration was limited to a mere three-year sentence in the juvenile system. He could still be tried as an adult. What that requires under Utah law is that he go through what's called the certification process. Our juvenile justice system is set up so children that commit crimes can be rehabilitated. They are not expected to undergo the harsh treatment that adults have in adult court. But children in our society do not lure little girls to a bridge at night. Under juvenile law, he would be in a juvie jail where they basically bring you oatmeal and give you counseling while you play checkers and watch TV. That's not right. He must be treated as an adult. Police receive a phone call from an inmate at the juvenile facility. In this phone call, the inmate explains that him and Chris had became close and that Chris told him the gruesome details of the murder. Chris had told this inmate that Annie had been telling people at school that she was pregnant with Chris's baby. I got a phone call from someone at juvenile detention that they had somebody that wanted to talk about the Chris Bagshaw case. There was a young man there who had befriended Chris. Chris had talked about the actual crime. Chris told him that Annie had been telling people that she was pregnant and that he knew he wasn't the father. He also said that Annie wanted to run away with him. And so he told her to meet him by the bridge and that they were going to run away. So she snuck out to run away with him and that they went down by the Jordan River. He said that he took a shovel with him to the river and he had actually, before she got there, he dug up a bush, the place he was planning on putting her body. And he started beating her with a shovel over and over and over again. He said that at some point, Annie told him, I love you. Why are you doing this? To which he responded, shut up, bitch. And he kept hitting her after he had beat her to where he actually said that you couldn't recognize her face. He said he took the shovel and he put the tip of it right here on her forehead. And he jumped on it like you do when you're trying to break hard dirt. It was at that point that she stopped moving. We now know that Annie was never pregnant. But at the time, Chris believed this. When Annie approached Chris with the idea to run away, Chris agreed and told Annie that they should meet by the bridge at the Jordan River. In Annie's mind, she was excited to run away with the boy that she loved. 
She snuck out of her house that night and left her parents a note, only to find out that Chris had a plan of his own. That, that, at that time, according to prosecutors, Casper Zach went down to the Jordan River there, met Bagshaw. Apparently she told him that she was pregnant when she really wasn't and that she wanted to run away. They say that Bagshaw flipped out, grabbed a shovel, hit her in the face multiple times, and then uh, left her body by the shoreline there. Bagshaw claims he never dumped her body in the river, but it did end up in the river. The world lost an angel. This was no accident, no impulsive moment of anger or fear. This was a thought-out, planned choice to rip Annie out of this world. It wasn't just Annie's life that he took. He took ours. The family of Annie Kasperzak breaking down in court as they remember their daughter, 14-year-old Annie, who was murdered by her boyfriend, 18-year-old Darwin Bagshaw, who was 14 at the time. I came so close to not being able to take matters into my own hands to not wait on justice. When we die, Annie will die with us. She will never be a mother, an aunt, a grandmother, or even a lifelong friend. Casper Zach's dad says he was the one who had identified his daughter. What I saw there, Your Honor, wasn't my daughter. It was something that you would see being hit by a train. The facial trauma and the anger and the rage and the gravity of this crime and offense, impulsive or not, 14 or not, wasn't one hit with a shovel. It would have been repeated hits. Chris attacked Annie with a shovel, leaving her face completely disfigured. Chris then put the end of this shovel to Annie's forehead and jumped on it, smashing her skull flat and continued to do so until Annie had stopped moving. With the details of this crime laid out in front of them, the detectives compare this evidence with the autopsy, and it confirms that these details of events are true. You have something from a quote-unquote jailhouse snitch. You do have to look at things with a little bit of grain of salt and even skepticism. And so what we wanted to do was make sure we could corroborate this description. So we reached out to the state medical examiner's office. The medical examiner was ready to testify that indeed the description of the injuries were consistent, both with the mechanism and manner of injury that the person had described. He bragged, he gloated over murdering Annie. That is what landed Chris Bagshaw in adult court, where he belongs. Once these horrific details of the crime were confirmed, it was enough to charge Chris as an adult in court. It was the smoking gun that prosecutors needed all along. At trial, Chris pled guilty to first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 15 years to life. He will be eligible for parole in 2034. Forgiveness, still far gone, for the father of Annie Kasperzak. She was a Riverton teen brutally murdered four years ago. Hugs outside the courtroom today just moments after her killer was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Now, you may remember this face right here. And the twists and the turns of the high-profile murder case from 2012 that made national headlines. Years after the fact, though, Darwin Bagshaw confessed to the crime. And today, that 18-year-old learned his fate in court. New specialist Nicole Val was there when his sentence was handed down. 
a brutal murder of a young uh, woman, uh, 14, 15 years of age, uh, is something that is chilling to the core. Judge James Blanche called the details of the crime chilling and unspeakable, sentencing 18-year-old Darwin Chris Bagshaw to 15 years to life in prison. Uh, because of the actions that you did, that you undertook. March 11, 2012, the 15-year-old body of Annie Kasperzak was found in the Jordan River, her body violently beaten with a shovel. It wasn't until years later that Bagshaw confessed to the horrific crime. He pleaded guilty in February. He had every single day he could have come forward and said, I'm sorry. Kasperzak's family addressed the court. At any point in time, he could have come forward and he did not. Her mother turning to Bagshaw with strong words. May you feel loss. May your tears heal your soul. In a last minute move, Bagshaw's attorneys fought for a lighter sentence, arguing he was only 14 at the time of the murder and his ability to make rational decisions was skewed by synthetic marijuana. That the adolescent brain continues to develop. Bagshaw offered this brief apology. I'm very sorry for everything that's happened and I want to apologize to Annie's family and to my family. The victim's family embraced outside of the courtroom, but closure... Is this closure? There's never going to be closure. They say is still too far away. Annie Kasperzak spent her short life looking for love with a permanent hole in her heart caused by years of foster care, she finally found a home. But the hole would not be filled until she had a family of her own. She wanted to be the mother that she never had, and she wanted to shower her child with love, but she would never get the chance. Annie loved Chris Bagshaw, and Chris loved his freedom. Chris was able to live free for many years, but the skeletons in his closet were eventually going to be set free. There is no true justice, but at least the truth behind what really happened to Annie Kasperzak was found, and the web of lies, deceit, and distractions finally came to an end. Annie knows that I love her, that that won't change. She's still a part of our family. And that's all I had hoped to give her. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you guys have an amazing stellar week. See you next time.